Welcome to the Good People Podcast, where each episode we explore what it means to be good by talking to everyday heroes, philanthropists, and altruists, and do-gooders. I'm Kelsey Timmerman. Hey, this is Kelsey. I'm flying solo today. Jay's working at the big boy job, and I'm just here by myself. I'm chiming in here on the 23rd of April for a very specific reason, and that's because something happened six years ago that I remember waking up that morning and getting the news. And kind of before I share what happened that day, I want to take you back to 2007 when I followed my Jingle These Christmas Boxers back to Bangladesh to meet the people who made it. And while I was there, you know, each place I go, I was trying to find different ways to interact with people that wasn't just sitting me sitting around peppering them with questions. And there was an amusement park in Bangladesh, and it's called Fantasy Kingdom. And it cost $3 per day to get into, and no one could really afford to go there. And this is, maybe is a bit more forced and stage of some, than something I would do today. But I went to Disney World's website, and I saw how much a ticket, a ticket cost there. And it was $67 for one child for one day at Disney World in 2007. So I decided I was going to take as many kids as I could into the amusement park for $67. So I took 19 kids and one old farmer. And actually, now I look, think about it, the math doesn't quite work out there. But uh, I guess counting me and my translator, I guess that would make the math work. So I t- took 19 kids and one old farmer into this amusement park on just this kind of random afternoon. And there was literally no one else in the amusement park when we first entered. It was just us. Like We had our own personal ride operator. Um, if we wanted to ride the roller coaster, they would turn on the roller coaster for us. If we wanted to ride the spinning cups, they would turn on the spinning cups. And the guy just followed us around. And the kids um, that I was had in the park, um, I mean, a lot of them didn't have shoes on. Um, one little girl just had a pair of kind of ratty shorts and you know, wasn't wearing a shirt at all. And I, I bought her a, a Fantasy Kingdom shirt so she had a shirt to wear the kids that were barefoot the sun just baked the stone ground and they didn't complain they just skipped um and then the old farmer was just like smiling ear to ear the whole time he was he was fantastic so to pick the kids i just kind of stood outside the gate and we kind of spread the word that i was going to take some folks in and the kids lined up shortest to tallest and the old farmer wanted to go so we just let him go as well and again like in reflecting back on this i don't know if i would do this today it just feels a little bit feels a little bit staged and i'm still not sure how i feel about this whole experience but there's a reason i'm telling you this story so it was uh you know it was i don't know it's hard to explain how it felt like the the kids were enjoying themselves at first they were quiet but then you know as they did this the spider kind of thing that spun them around then they started to like laugh and and even one kid tried to spit off the ride to see what would happen and they got off that ride and they were like champions and we were all in this together and it was um it was the energy was good the energy of all was good. Uh, the roller coaster was actually the last thing that we did. And I remember one of the – we had to go in two groups on the roller coaster. In the first group, one kid uh, pretty much was, like, jumping out of the roller coaster before it even stopped. And uh, I went with the second group, and I sat in the front with the with the old farmer. And when we were going around the hills, like, he was just laughing hysterically the whole time. I remember his head, like, kind of falling on my shoulder as we were – rounded and turned. So it's it's definitely a day and a moment, and I will, will never forget. I remember some of their names, Russell and Zuman, and uh, all these kids had jobs. You know, Russell was the one of the older boys, and he worked at the garment factory, and he I think he was like 18 at the time. He'd worked there for three years. and um, But all the kids had jobs, even the youngest ones. They were picking up trash on the street and re- recycling it or – they were there's one guy there that was uh, um selling some type of rice on the street i think someone was an herbal doctor maybe uh i can't remember all the things that they did but they all you know they all had jobs and then you know our our day was done at fantasy kingdom and we walked out we stood outside these gates and to the and stepped into the reality of bangladesh 
because Fancy Kingdoms was a sparkling, clean, not crowded place. And Dhaka, Bangladesh was kind of not those things. And we got, and, and I, I called a cab, or got a cab, my translator, with my translator. And I remember saying goodbye to everyone and getting in that cab and, and driving off and looking back and, and seeing them kind of, some stood there and waved and some kind of went about their day. And just remember thinking, like, what the hell was that? Like, how should I feel about that? And that's one of the things I really love about writing is that it's a chance to sit down and to process your thoughts and to learn from these experiences um, and just life experiences. And so it took me a long time to even try to process that. And, and I still feel like I don't have it fully processed. Um, you know, I kind of, what I ended up writing was that, um, you know, if, you know, they walked about outside this place all the time and they, I'm sure they wondered what it was like on the inside. So at least they got to see that and, and, and maybe they have a memory that lasts, but there's still part of me that's like, maybe I should have taken $67, divided it by 20 people and, and gone about my business. Maybe I would have uh, had a better impact then. So, um, so I, I'm still, I can criticize myself for this, but Six years ago, when I woke up and I heard the news um, that a factory in that part of Dhaka collapsed, killing 1,134 people um, and injured thousands more, those are the folks who I thought about that morning. And um, I think tra travel can kind of increase caring about places and because you have names and faces and personalities and um, to, to put to a place. Uh, so when I heard about the factory collapse, the Rana Plaza factory disaster, you know, I thought about Russell and Zuman and the old farmer. And you know, were, were they working in that factory? Um, did they know someone? They have a family member who worked in that factory that collapsed, that was killed, that was injured. Just the biggest disaster ever in the history of the garment industry. And I remember my publisher reaching out to me that day. Um, Where Am I Eating actually just had just come out. Uh, and my publisher reached out. The publicist there I hadn't heard from in a long time. And she wanted to start booking me on programs to talk about this disaster and to talk about my experiences in the Where Am I Wearing book. And I didn't want to do it. Um, I felt like it was like a like trying to capitalize on this disaster. Part of me thought that. Um, in hindsight, I kind of wish I would have done more. I would wish I would have spoken out a little bit more at that time um, and shared some of my experiences and, and, and my stories. And uh, because I, I feel like that they need to be heard, um, but at, I just wasn't. I just wasn't ready to to do that that day six years ago. And so now that day, um, April 24th for us here in the United States when I woke up, but I believe the actual disaster happened April 23rd in Bangladesh. Um, we remember it as Fashion Revolution Day. So kind of a movement sprung up where designers and, and some brands and activists came together to commemorate this horrible disaster. And uh, every year or almost every year I get invited to different places to speak or to, to comment on this. And this year was no different. I got invited by uh, DePaul University was having a fair trade fashion show. And they invited me and I was there on the 22nd. And so today's episode is a little bit different. Um, I, I actually recorded that those presentations that took place that uh, on the 22nd at DePaul. And there's two speakers. I'm the second speaker. The first speaker is Chris Cox. He is with the. Oh, hold on. I gotta pull this up. I had it my computer, but uh, let's. See. He is with the uh, the Human Thread uh, campaign, which is inspired by Catholic social teaching. The Human Thread seeks to foster Catholics' awareness that promotes solidarity between consumers of clothing and the people who produce them in order to create more just economy and sustainable communities and that's what they do and uh, Chris's bio and I asked Chris if he'd, he'd let me record this and use it and he said that he would so I'm using this with his permission 
And uh, Chris's bio doesn't go into all that Chris has done. Um, so, but here's his bio. After he's the campaign manager for for the Human Thread campaign. So after 16 years working in multicultural, low-income parishes in the U.S. and Latin America, Chris began to manage the Human Thread campaign in January 2016. Long committed to faith-based advocacy and the work of justice, Chris is now the associate director of the Seventh Generation Interfaith Coalition for Responsible Investment. So Chris, uh, none of that kind of really kind of focuses on, on exactly what Chris does, but Chris works with uh, institutions, Catholic institutions, so universities or parishes that, you know, the church and often these institutions have a lot of money and they put that money in investments so that money makes money, right? Um, well, Chris puts pressure uh, and works with these institutions to put pressure on companies that Catholic institutions invest in to make sure they're not supporting things like human trafficking or slavery, and so that's what Chris does. Now, Chris is also uh, a former priest, which is a bit of a long story that I won't get into, but I really enjoy the chance to talk with Chris. We actually walked back to our hotel together. It was about a half-hour walk from, from the event, and I got to know a little bit about Chris. I would actually love to have him on, on the podcast at a later date and for him to share more of his story but um, so but what you're about to hear is was recorded at the event. So I'm sure the quality isn't always the best, which I know the quality of our podcast here as we're starting off is isn't always probably what, what it could be. But we're, we're we're working on that. We got a new mic. Um, so you're going to first you're going to hear Chris be introduced and then Chris talk and then you'll hear me. And then I'll just, we'll just have that be the end of the podcast. So. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in, and without further ado, this is from DePaul University's Fair Trade Fashion Show. All right, welcome everybody. Um, thanks for coming out. I'm Bill Cavanaugh. I'm the director of the Center for World Catholicism, uh, one of the sponsors of the, this event tonight, and it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Chris Cox, who's uh, somebody that I've known for a while. We both uh, worked in Chile um, at different times, um, but, uh, and both um, graduates of the, proud graduates of the University of Notre Dame. After 16 years working in multicultural low-income parishes in the U.S. and Latin America, Chris began to manage the Human Thread Campaign, which uh, works on issues of justice in the manufacture of clothing. Uh, in 2016, he's been committed to faith-based advocacy and work of justice for many years now, and uh, Chris is now the Associate Director of the Seventh Generation Interfaith uh, Coalition for Responsible Investment, based in Milwaukee, but um, working all over the country and all over the world on such issues as human trafficking, uh, supply chain, labor, immigration, fair, uh, fair trade, uh, human rights to water, uh, corporate water impacts, affordability of medicines, and the list goes on and on. So an all-around uh, guy that you want uh, on your side. So um, please join me in welcoming Chris Cummins. With all due respect for uh, Professor John Klein, who wrote the book Sewing Hope, I want to steal at least that first little part um, in his writing on Alpagasi and, and talking about how it is we invest in a, in a better world. We'll start then with a little reflection on Lazarus and the Rich Man, because tonight we gather um, on Monday of Easter week, of the octave of Easter. We gather also on what is Earth Day, and we gather in the midst of Fashion Revolution Week, right on the occasion of the Rana Plaza episode, which will be actually a couple days from now. But starting maybe with this gospel story, um, Luke chapter 16, you probably are familiar with the story. There was a rich man. He feasted sumptuously every night. He had his friends over and lived a splendid life. And at the gates of his residence was a poor man, a, a beggar by the name of Lazarus. 
who had longed for the crumbs that would fall from the table, and his poverty was such that even the dogs would come and lick his wounds. As human life goes, they both die. The rich man went to Gehenna. The beggar, Lazarus, was taken to the bosom of Abraham. And from their separate places, the rich man saw Lazarus there with Abraham and said, Father Abraham, would you send Lazarus to dip his hand in some water so that I might have something to drink for it's so hot down here. And Abraham said, no, there's a big gulf between us. He can't do that. You have rewards in your life. He now has rewards here. Well, then can you send him to my brothers so that they might know about this place? And Abraham said, no, um, even if one would rise from the dead, they wouldn't believe. Two things about that story I think that are significant. One, in most of human history, we know who the powerful people are by name. We know inventors of, of, of machinery. We know presidents. We know CEOs of corporations. We know generals of armies. Often, we don't know the names of the poor. This parable puts that upside down, right? Here, we know the name of the poor guy, Lazarus. But if you check scripture as close as you want, you'll never see a name of the rich man. Second thing about this parable, if we were to kind of imagine a little bit more, rather than a dialogue with Abraham, but a dialogue with Jesus, you could almost imagine the rich man saying, it's not my fault. I didn't do this to Lazarus. His condition is not my responsibility. But we might even imagine that Jesus saying to him, you're right, but he was there all along and you never saw him. He was there at your gates, and you didn't see him. And so the poor, the vulnerable, are almost always invisible to us. And so I want to take us through a little journey to try and see better, and see especially those who are most vulnerable, most poor in our midst. I also really enjoy Seth Godin's um, blog, and he one day had this one. Once you have enough for beans and rice, and taking care of your family and a few other things, money is a story. You can tell yourself any story you want about money, and it's better to tell yourself a story about money that you can happily live with. And then like even if we think about what sort of story does our closet tell, right? Uh, I had to spend a little while because most of the images, if you go looking for like lots of clothing, unfortunately the stereotype means I always put up images of women's closets. I try to make sure we found a men's one here. And I've had grade school kids count up for me how many pairs of shoes, and they saw 25. So this person has almost one pair of shoes for every day of the month. But what story does our closet tell us? And then I mentioned earlier the Rana Plaza anniversary. And thinking about then the story of that and how it fits into what it is we wear. You'll hear more about that actually in Kelsey's talk, so I'm going to be fairly brief with it. But in the midst of the rubble of that collapsed building, so many lives that were taken. And Pope Francis, on the Sunday after the event, had those words, living on 38 euros, $50 a month. That was the pay of these people who died. That is called slave labor. So where we want to go next is kind of five reasons why we might want to rethink our relationship with our clothes. Number one, human trafficking, the four C's. Scripture, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But every good line in scripture, there's always a corollary. So you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But the corollary, the truth will set you free. But first it will make you miserable. <laughs> cell phones, um, first of the four C's. Our cell phones, uh, conflict minerals, uh, in the midst of them, basically in the United States on a 4G network, you're not gonna find an ethical cell phone that is human trafficking free. Our clothing, we'll hear more about that along the way. But an immense amount of human trafficking and much of the clothing that we find in many, many places to purchase. Chocolate, so like even the chocolate chip cookies. And coffee being the fourth. Most days before I leave the house then, I have engaged in three networks of human trafficking. And that's a part of, of my daily experience and probably not unlike most of ours. This is just some data. I'll try and move quickly here uh, regarding, like, for instance, um, the conflict minerals that are in our cell phones, right? Um, basically, the Dodd-Frank Act requires all consumer electronics companies to report to the federal government. 
annually on the source of their minerals, like the lithium and the cobalt that are in all those products. It, what, the, what these reports basically say is that 80% have absolutely no idea where it comes from, and only 1% can say beyond a reasonable doubt where, where their minerals actually came from. So the safest guess is basically to say it's probably very badly sourced. Second reason to rethink our relationship with the close. So after human trafficking, the second one would be climate change. Uh, stat that's bandied out quite a bit is that 10% of all global carbon emissions are attributable to our clothes. Biggest impact after big oil. There are also a whole host of other issues listed there, but in the interest of time, we'll keep moving. Those who've done studies, who've spent time talking with garment workers, also report a heavy percentage of violence, sexual violence, that happens in many of these workplaces. Overwhelmingly, the workers are women. And, and particularly, I'm speaking about the bigger factory settings, you know, for the big chains, the big um, the folks, the, the stuff that we find in many of our malls. Fourth, looking at wages and seeking a just wage. These are salaries from 2016. Bottom figure there is Bangladesh, $68 a month at that time. World Bank, the United Nations, would tell us anybody under, earning under $2 a day or less is in extreme poverty. So we would say Bangladesh, 31 days a month, $62, they're above extreme poverty unless they have children or dependents, in such case then stuck in extreme poverty. Finally, uh, going back to our closet, thinking about our relationship in terms of stewardship, about um, our, what gives us joy, about what motivates and drives our lives. One of those things is a question that can be asked is, what do I own and what owns me? If I have a really fancy car and I go to a mall, I might park further away so that there's nobody next to me, so that nobody dings the door. And if I've got a much older car, I may be much more inclined to park up close where it's more exposed to other doors. And again, the question at heart is, what do I own and what owns me? And maybe a regular practice even of finding ways of undoing ourselves with some of the things that are in our closet. Um, I have a list basically of, of how many sweaters I can wear myself, how many shirts, et cetera, et cetera. And each year, going into Lent, for instance, I go revisit that. And inevitably, in the course of the year, so say the figure is seven sweaters, inevitably my mother will give me a new one at Christmas. I will have gotten a couple of others. And there may be then 10 sweaters and I get back to the seven. One may be pretty easy to let go of because it's pretty warm. Another, maybe my mother picked a pretty ugly sweater that I don't really want. And then the third one that I need to let go of, I begin to say, I don't really like that sweater. But again, to that question of what, what do I own, what owns me, maybe that's the very one I need to let go of, giving to St. Vincent Paul or Goodwill or other places like that. But at the end of the day, more stuff doesn't necessarily bring us happiness. What I do now <laughs> is I work in coalition with mostly Catholic organizations. We have 25 Catholic religious supporters up there. We have a Catholic diocese, Green Bay. We have a Catholic hospital system and three values-based investors. All told, their retirement money, their health money, that's about $16 billion. And we work alongside, as one organization and a group in New York called the Interfaith Center on Corporate Responsibility, which are 300 faith-based organizations and about 800 billion in assets. In the US economy, that sounds like a lot, but in the US economy, that's actually a pretty small amount. <laughs> but it gives us a seat at the table in talking with companies. And so what we do, if you have $2,000 of shares in a company, you have the right to introduce a shareholder resolution. The companies have to respond to you about the kinds of concerns you raise with them. And we do it for the least of these, for the garment worker, for creation, for field workers, for all those who are on the margins and suffer. And one of the reasons why we go to companies with this is, this list is 2012, but it was kind of the best illustration of it that I could make or find. It lists global economies by, um, by GDP, and then it inserts in that list companies based on annual revenue. The updated figures on that, over 50, 55 to be precise, of the top 100 economic entities on the planet are actually companies, not countries. So a company like Macy's has greater annual revenue than Bangladesh with 170 million people, which is a large exporter of clothing, they have more revenue than Bangladesh has to spend on education, healthcare, security, infrastructure. And so if 
Macy's disagrees with the decision that Bangladesh wants to make as a company, as a country, um, who's going to win? Especially then when you line up a whole bunch of large companies on those kinds of things. So if we want to make significant change, moving some of those that are in blue on there actually can be very fast ways of making significant impact. There's also a kind of changing ground and evolving context for a lot of this. UN's Sustainable Development Goals are really important. Number eight there on decent work is critical. There are also UN guiding principles on human rights and business. And then California has a uh, transparent, uh, Chain Supply Transparency Act. The United Kingdom now has a modern slavery act. France and Australia likewise have similar laws in place. And so it's requiring much more transparency from companies than was previously the case. We've been using that then to kind of build out a notion like this. We want big companies to make a policy commitment to respect, protect, and remediate human rights. That's right inside the UN Guiding Principles on Human Rights. And we have kind of this system of what we're trying to ask them to do. Um, part of it is to look at not simply the code of conduct. If you look at Many of the companies will basically say, we have a code of conduct, we, we don't have child labor, we don't have human trafficking, any factory that has that we'll get rid of. But that's basically cover your derriere kind of policy sorts of things. And so what it's asking to do is to kind of step outside that and look at it instead of protecting the company, but protecting the most vulnerable workers. And, and in the midst of that, kind of remediating the harm that's done to those most vulnerable workers when their rights are violated. This year, this resolution is being brought to shareholders at Macy's and at TJX, which is the parent company of TJ Maxx. We're gonna lose, we know that. <laughs> but if we get 2% of the shareholder votes, we can bring it back next year. And we can continue to kind of bring pressure on those companies about it. The other two, Walmart and Kohl's, uh, we have a long history with Kohl's. They're right down the road from us in Milwaukee, so we deal with them regularly. Walmart, for what it's worth, I grew up in a small town in western Kansas initially, where when they came in and shut down Main Street, um, we called them the evil empire when I was growing up. But Walmart, as the world's largest corporation in terms of annual sales, actually has a, an ethical recruitment commitment that they require of all their suppliers, which is actually a standard setter. They also, for instance, in terms of palm oil, uh, require that the El Salvador region of Brazil have responsibly sourced palm oil. And that commitment on their part is a game changer because they're the biggest, uh, the biggest one out there. So while they don't pay nearly enough to their workers here, there are at least some lights that are hopeful with a company like that. Again, then going back to what story do we tell? What are we trying to see? Who are we trying to see? Um, there are so many things that are part of our daily life that we just fail to take, pay attention to. You know, if you ride the L and things like that, there are lots of people in the cars that we just don't see. And so many things that bring comfort to our lives, like clothing, cell phones, chocolate, coffee. There's a lot of human exploitation in the midst of that. And the question really becomes, how do we use the resources that are at our hand, be it as consumers or be it as shareholders, to begin to make a place that protects those most vulnerable, those most in need? I'll wrap up here because I think that way we can keep moving on. But I'll be here if you've got some more questions. Love to talk with you more about it. Um, some of my contact stuff there. And uh, yeah, maybe I'll just close out with that.
So it's my pleasure. He is a phenomenal person. Um, and his story is really the stories of those he's met on his travels. So it's wonderful to hear from him because it's like hearing from the individuals with whom he's met over the course of his life. So it's my pleasure to welcome Kelsey to our panel. All right, thank you very much. So I'm a very unlikely person to be speaking at anything fashion. If I had fashion sense, it would be kind of slob. It would be my style. Like I had a t-shirt hoodies with the holes in them, things like that. I'm a very unlikely um, person to author the best-selling fashion book. Just trying to give you a little context. Um, I, I hit that list just beneath Khloe Kardashian. Uh, I'm sure you've all read Strong Looks Better Naked. No, no one, me, but, uh, so uh, I think that Chloe and I had much different paths to uh, this list and to the world of fashion. And for me, it started in college. I studied uh, anthropology, and I graduated degree in anthropology. And I quickly put to use as a scuba instructor in Key West, Florida, where I uh, would save up all my money, and then I would blow it all traveling, and I would started to write about some of my travel experiences and started to get published in different magazines and newspapers. And before I knew it, I was making like tens of dollars a month <laughs> as a writer. It was the world's most expensive hobby, and I loved it. And I know I could go anywhere in the world and have adventures that would be worth writing about. So I had this t-shirt. Anyone recognize who that is on the shirt? Tattoo, yeah, for bonus points, the show. Yeah, double bonus points, the name of the actor. There you go, he's actually just an HBO movie about his life. Anyway, uh, the guy from Tyrion Lannister from Game of Thrones played. Uh, but yeah, that's off topic. Uh, so I had this shirt and I was looking for the next place to go and I thought, what if I just went randomly Wherever the shirt was, it's made. It says, coming from my tropical paradise. I'm like, where is this paradise tattoo? I want to check it out. So I decided to look at the tag and go wherever it was made. So if you do me a favor now, if you could all stand up, if you're able, please. So if you have eaten, uh, let's see here, seafood the last 24 hours, sit down. Fancy. Uh, when I say, ask a question in the end, no one sits um, or Muncie, I should say. <laughs> uh, if you've had chocolate the last 24 hours, sit down. I know you all ate some free chocolate, right? Wow, that's about everything. If you've had tea the last 24 hours, sit down. Coffee? Oh, wow, okay. Usually, I have someone throwing bananas, and like usually everyone sit down, but usually there's some person who's still standing who I don't know what, they're eat, what, what they eat, and then I say, clothes. So, when it comes to clothing, 97% of our clothes are made somewhere else. Uh, Chris was telling me right before this, he had to share with me a stat. In 1970, 97% of clothes were made in the United States. So that quickly has changed. When it comes to the food items, it's, uh, let's see if I remember, it's 80% uh, of seafood comes from somewhere else, 50% of fruit, and 20% of vegetables all come from somewhere else. So every single day, we're very tangibly connected to people around the world. Does anyone know where they're wearing right now? Where it was made? Take a, take a 30 seconds and get some help. That's Chicago Fair Trade shirt. We'll see where that was made.
But what I thought was, dude, I'm going to Honduras. I stuck in my brother Kyle into going with me, and we were just going to go uh, have jungle adventures. So I had made arrangements to go to on the Mosquito Coast, this village, Mocarone. And um, while uh, I learned this biologist was going to be there at the same time that we were going to be there, so I called him up. His name is Carl. My brother's name is Kyle. Uh, so I called up Carl, who's in Texas, and he's like, hey, would you and your brother Kyle be interested in search the elusive American crocodile in the jungles of Honduras? And I'm like, yeah, that sounds absolutely amazing. And it did back home in the Midwest. Then we take a, a prop plane, dirt runway, get the back of a pickup truck for five hours, drive into the jungle. We get there, it's dark, we eat dinner, I'm tired, ready to go to bed, long day to travel. And then Carl's like, hey, you guys ready to go? I'm like, what do you mean? Go where? He's like, into the jungle with crocodiles. And I'm like, uh, I'm pretty sure that's when you get eaten in the jungle by crocodiles is at night. And that's what, I, that's what I'm thinking. And what I say is, because of peer pressure, yeah, let's go. And then this is our boat. It's a dugout canoe. If you itch your butt wrong on this thing, you risk falling into the water. And this, the first time I was in the jungle, it was just complete darkness, right? And we took that dugout canoe as far as we could upstream until we could no longer navigate. And then we got out of the boat and walked in water, sometimes up the mid-thigh, looking for crocodiles. What could go wrong? And at first I'm like, is that a crocodile? Is that a rock? crocodile rock? And I think at any moment a crocodile is going to munch on me to the death row thing and just end it all. And after a while, I just kind of hoped that happened because we were out there until like midnight, one in the morning. It was just horrible. So we didn't find a crocodile, so we start to walk back to our boat and we get in the boat and we're wearing headlamps and there's insects flying in the light of our headlamps and bats zipping inches from our faces, eating the bugs, don't even care, half asleep, and then Carl yells, kill it, kill it. I'm awake now, like whatever's going on. And the guy in the front of the boat smacked the water three times and up floated five feet of white belly. It was a furred lance snake, one of the most feared creatures in the jungles of Honduras, much more so than even crocodiles. And so Carl reached down this long critter grabbers picks up the snake, sits in the middle of the boat, which was a slight problem, because that is where I was sitting. So it was just me and certain horrible, painful death. And uh, you kind of wonder, like, what you would do in those situations. Like, I'm probably going to grab it by the neck. I don't know. And I just sat there. I just sat there and just waited for the inevitable. And then my brother sitting behind me was like, Kels, scoot back. I'm like, yeah, that's probably a pretty good idea right about now. So I scoot back. I'm sitting on our, my brother's lap. He's sitting on our guy's lap. We're like two grown men occupying 20 feet, uh, to, you know, two feet of a 20-foot canoe, all right? Then we learn about the rules of the jungle, and the deadly venomous snake is in the boat, jump in the water. Uh, so we jumped in the water. Carl secured the snake. These were the type of adventures I was pursuing. My brother ended up getting a touch of malaria. He's fine. And then he went back home to Indiana, and um, I decided that, you know, I came, to Honduras because my shirt was made here. So maybe I should at least, while I'm here, it'd be kind of funny, I'll just show up at the factory where it was made. So I have a great plan. I'm gonna put I'm gonna put on the shirt and I'm gonna show up. So that's what I did. I put on my shirt and I show up at the factory. And I walk up there and I'm like, hey mister, this is guard. He's got a uh, gun down the back of his pants. I'm like, hey mister, the shirt, <laughs> it was made here. Now I'm wearing it. It's like this whole full circle kind of thing. Like, can I have a tour of your factory? And what do you think he said? Aww. No, like, who are you and why are you here? Where did you even come from? And so that way I get a tour of the factory. So I decide the factory for the workers to be let out, sea of workers, and one of them stops to talk to me. And his name is Emil Carr. He is 25, which is the same age I was then as well. And it got awkward. Fast. I never thought like what I would actually say to him. Like, hey, thanks for making sure. I don't know, like, uh, what I would ask him. You know, I, from a sociology class in college, I, the questions of this job provide a better life for you and your family. What do you get paid? Are there kids that work in there? All questions I wasn't comfortable asking, and I didn't ask. Them. I think for the first time in my life, 
I kind of, here I was traveling willy-nilly around the world, and here I was face-to-face -face with the guy who was make, made my shirt. And I think it's the first time in my life I kind of uh, saw the privilege and opportunity of my own life. And suddenly this journey of traveling around the world to get adventure stories became something much, much more. I did ask this question to Emil Gar, and I talked to him for 15 minutes, maybe. I learned he likes to play soccer, he lives with his parents, and I went on my way. But it just kind of ate at me that I didn't know what life was like for him. So I decided, well, to kind of show you how silly it all was, I, even in that moment, I was like, what if I gave the dude who made my shirt, what if I took off the shirt and gave it to him, and that's embarrassing. Um, so yeah, that led to this question of who does make our clothes, and what are their lives actually like when we go to places? And this time, I'm going to ask the questions. So that took me to Bangladesh, where my underwear were made. And that's kind of awkward to tell people. They're like, what brings you to my country? And I'm like, did I tell them? Um, while I was there, I met a woman named Arifa. And I was I met her in a room full of garment workers. It was kind of doing this mass interview thing. And she was in the back. And I would ask a question. And different people would kind of answer that question, but her voice would always rise to the top. And before I knew it, as I was asking more and more questions, she was standing in front of the room, speaking for everyone else. You know, there's something really important the garment industry does. It goes to some of the poorest places on the planet, and it gives people jobs, specifically many women jobs. And development experts and economists believe that one of the best ways to lift people out of poverty is to educate and employ women. So maybe that's what I was seeing with Arifa. So I do that awkward thing of like, what time do you wake up in the morning? I will be there, I'm gonna follow you around throughout your entire life for a couple days, right? And so she was all right with that. So I um, followed her to the market where she would like steal a peanut and pay someone with a wink. You can kind of tell that she always got her deal, uh, the deal that she wanted. She's a single mom of three kids. Now, when I was there, and this was two, way back in 2007, she was earning $24 a month. Rice cost $15 per month. Three kids. So she has to make tough decisions. One of the decisions she made with her eldest son, Armand, was that he would go to Saudi Arabia to work to earn money to send home to help support his family. Now, Arifa, like many of the workers I met in Cambodia, in China, and Ethiopia, and all the places that I've been, she was a former farmer, right? And uh, many people left the fields to work in these factories to pursue those opportunities. And so was uh, Reshma Begum. And so Reshma, uh, you know, if the global economy could talk, it would say, don't be a farmer, move to the city, right? There's a billion farmers on the planet, 60% of them live in poverty. So go work in the city. So Reshma heard that, she went to work in a factory, she got a job with a sewing, and there, she, one day, uh, she, with her coworkers, they showed up to work, and they saw cracks in the walls, and they were concerned, because they had heard about things that happened to factories in Bangladesh. And so, uh, the, someone came in, for the factory paid them to come in, inspect the factory, oh, we'll stand forever. So the workers come back, still see the cracks in the walls, they're still concerned, but what can they do? If they don't sit down and work, they might get fired, so they need that day's worth of work. And so she sat at her sewing machine, and she did not leave that factory for 17 days. The factory collapsed around her and coworkers, killing 1,134. What Something with this stat that really stands out, the promotion for this event uh, at 1,100 and 38, and it, it just seems really in, like important. Like it's for four more people than I thought, but it's hard. It's such a large figure. It's hard to even have emotion with with that figure. Um, so somewhere between 1,134 and 1,138, thousands more were injured. Reshma found packs of cookies to survive on. At first, she said she heard the cries, um, and they just lessened and lessened until she was the only one in there, found some bottles of water, and just somehow survived. It's a miracle, 17 days. They pulled her out of the factory, and she was malnourished, she was dehydrated, they took her to the hospital, then the, you know, this giant disaster happened 
which, which honestly many of us have forgotten about already. And this was 2013, right? And, um, and so the, they wanted to know what happened or how she survived. So the global press came out and wanted to talk to this American woman. And so she gave her press conference. At the end of that, she said, I will never work in the garment factory again. She pursued that opportunity to go to the city, work in this factory, and that opportunity literally collapsed around her. One thing that's in my work that I come across is, is sometimes uh, exploitation and opportunities seem like vastly different things. But sometimes I can look at people's lives who I meet and I'm, I'm not sure where to put them on that spectrum. Whether it's a cocoa farmer in Ivory Coast who's basically enslaved but kind of chose to be there or someone who works in a garment factory that collapses around them. So this all started um, with Milkar in Honduras. So I went to Cambodia, I went to Bangladesh, I went to China, and then I decided I would go back to Honduras. And this is after the first edition of my book came out, and I went back to Honduras, and I brought a copy of the book, and pulled out my, um, my notes, and there was a phone number for a meal car, and I thought, there's no way that this phone number works. So my translator calls it, and the phone rings, and the woman answers, and, and she doesn't hang up on him, and I'm talking, I'm like, oh my gosh, is the meal car live? Is he dead? At this point in time, uh, Santa Pedro Sula, Honduras was a homicide capital of the world. Um, and so I'm afraid something happened to him. My translator hangs up and says, Kelsey, you are not going to believe this. I'm like, what? Milkar? He's in California. <laughs> so I tracked him down. And the Milkar made the journey north. He got a bonus from work and bought a bus ticket to the Guatemala-Mexican border walked through deserts in Mexico to the train, and eventually made it to the United States after three months. And uh, in, in some ways, he supports his family, his three daughters too. Uh, I didn't know about the first time I was there, he has three daughters, and he supports them in a way that he couldn't, as if he actually lived with them, right? Um, so he's kind of this man between two worlds, but he went to the place where his shirts are sold. Right, to pursue that opportunity. And asking Yokar um, just a month or two ago if he had any uh, words for folks when I was sharing his story, and that's what he told me. Do you have a dream? Can you imagine your path as I did when I left Honduras? I went out to fight to give a better life to all my family, my brothers, my mother, my grandparents. I'm still fighting always with a lot of enthusiasm to get ahead, because life is about goals. No matter how difficult it is, we have to overcome the obstacles, and mine is not the exception. So you hear these stories, and you hear names, you see the faces, and you interact with, with folks who make your clothes, you suddenly realize that we're connected in this really, really tangible way, then what, right? I feel like there's some responsibility that comes with that connection. So how do we act? I think awareness without action leads to guilt. Once we know this stuff, how is it going to change the way that we interact with the world. And, and thankfully, there are a lot more options now about how to shop with their ethics in the marketplace than there were when this work started in 2007. Um, there's actually a ton of fair trade apparel now through companies like Patagonia and Prana, um, and, and Amanda Traders is an example. They're here today. I visited their uh, store, uh, or their, what was their office, and they're doing really, really great work as well, and, and you know, 10, 15 years ago, there wasn't that much. There just wasn't. So I wrote a book that came out in 2008, and at the end, people were like, well, where do I shop? And I'm like, I, I don't know, you know, it just wasn't. So there has been a lot of progress, and a lot of that is why we're here today, the Rana Plaza factory disaster. That really, I mean, some of this was happening before that, but that really kind of got some of the momentum going. So, um, but you know, that's one thing. We need to be more ethical consumers. We need to think about where stuff comes from and, and, and who it comes from. But, you know, we're not going to shop our way, just shop our way to a better world. That's such an American idea, right? Of like, we're just going to consume better and the world's going to be better. Great. High five. Let's go shopping, right? And so, what for me has been a challenge of, 
Like what, how else can we make an impact? And that led to my third book, uh, Where Am I Giving? Which if you text your email address to this number, I'll give away a copy uh, to someone today. So when I get off here during the fashion show, I'll, I'll text you and I'll randomly pick a winner. But that's why I kind of went around the world to try to figure out what is the good person equation? What are, are, what are our responsibilities, right? And I think that this is the, the biggest thing for me, the, the biggest question that, you know, it starts with a shirt, right? It started with a shirt for me, and once we think about that shirt, and, um, it, and it opens our mind to the way that the world is, and we want to make a bigger difference, we each have to look at ourselves, like, what difference can we individually make? What are our passions and skills? Um, how, how can we give back? How can we give up our time, our talent, our resources? Um, you know, this, there's not going to shop our way to a better world. So I went in search of this again, this good person equation. Like, what is the what is the least amount of good I can do to check all the boxes to 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 um, meet my responsibility as a global and local citizen? And what all of these journeys have taught me, it's not about the least that we can do but it's about the most that we can do with the gifts that we have been given. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Good People Podcast. Special thanks to my friend Jay Mormon for co-hosting and to Cliff Ritchie for the great tunes. You can listen to Cliff on Spotify or find him at cliffritcheyart.com. Let's keep the good going. Please share, rate, and subscribe. We'd love to hear from you. Visit KelseyTimmerman.com slash goodpeople to find show notes, suggest guests, learn more about my books, and tell us about the good you are doing in the world. 